Joel, you're going to be able to handle me standing here tonight? Is good? Okay. We have learned this week with the kids, we've learned this week with the kids that if this is here and I am, and I am here, that works pretty well to manage a teaching event. It's a little different, a little change. I'm on the ground floor. I will move to see you. <laughs> These posts, they're so fun to see who chooses to sit behind them and how they manage to stay <laughs> behind those posts that, that hold up the, the mezzanine there. <clears throat> Can you hear me okay? <laughs> I believe all systems are firing. <laughs> I'm thrilled to be with you tonight. We're uh, on, on mission tonight, studying a series I'm calling On Mission. It's the third talk. We're solving the problems of time tonight. Last time we solved um, the nature of problems themselves with, uh, are, we, are we solving problems in life or are we just solving, uh, are we on a mission God has us on? How does that work? And so uh, we called it um, um, the mission despite the storm. And so tonight we're going to solve the, the, how God's mission for your life will address your greatest fears. That'll be helpful, right? All, all the hardest things in life really resolve to the issue of time, as uh, some of you might well know what that is. Yeah, I'm, I'm talking to some of you with that, and others are just, hey, that's a nice, pretty blue picture. Um, but uh, what we're here to do, as you know, is to grow in grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And you just can't get away from that word knowledge. And it is God's grace that he has shared his thinking with us through the precious prophetic and apostolic word which we have in our hands we are wealthy as you all know beyond our imagination by just having this but to unlock it to know it as god would have us know it is really something that's on his terms isn't it something that will happen on his timeline his way so let's take a moment and ask god for that god give us what you would have us know of yourself and your word and let it impact our lives the way you want. Father, we pause tonight to praise you, to glorify you for all that you've said and done. For when you speak, things happen like creation. What you've said here in the word changes our hearts, redefines our perspective. It makes us different. And indeed, we do need to change every one of us. We look for the change that you bring about through your spirit's work with this precious word tonight, God, make us different, conform us to the character of your son, and strengthen us for the tasks that you've put in our path. Let us rejoice in the work as we enjoy the light burden and the easy yoke of your precious son, in whose name we ask it. Amen. So we are on mission. What is on mission? It's a play on words. Set this over here. Play on words, which means we're talking about the topic on mission. Well, that, we're talking about the mission God has us in as the topic. But there's another way to use that on preposition. On mission means that that's what we should be. We should be on mission. We, should, we need to be uh, about it. And so it's, it's the topic, but it's also what we're doing. Last week, we discussed, well, so far, we've talked about the first thing was, what are we doing here? That was the big question we asked. What are we doing here? And what we mean is, why are we here on earth? What's the point of life? Why, do we, why did God give us life? 
And why did he give us the new life, new birth? And what are we here for? See, the way a church operates, the way Christians operate, um, will either be reflective of the Word of God or it won't. Let me give an example. If my purpose every time we assembled was to make sure that you truly believed in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior. Now that was my purpose in my speaking, that you believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, that He died for your sins on the cross. If that w- it is something I want to happen for everyone that hasn't trusted in Christ, I want you to do that. But if that was the goal of every assembly, that that was, what, that was it, then after a few times of believing, Lord, did it take? I mean, I do believe. Why are you doing it again? If after 15 or 20 years of that, you wondered, why are we here in the seats? Why did we come? Why are we a part of this, this thing? If the whole thing is just that we believe every Sunday. See, I believed when I was a little kid. I've believed ever since. And I am a believer. I'm not a, I didn't believe. I have believed and do believe. You see what I mean? It's not like just a past experience. It's an ongoing reality. So um, nothing against an evangelistic approach to an evangelistic situation, but uh, you're not, and my point is that you're not just here to become a Christian. And, uh, and you know what? The, the reformed answer to this is, well, we don't really know until we fully, until we fully persevered. So we just keep on believing, and uh, we'll know at the end if we make it. Well, that won't work, because that's not the Bible. That's man attempting with his system to, to do what God alone can do, and it's God's system. So we said, what, what are we doing here? Well, we're growing up. We're growing spiritually. We're in the Word. We're putting on Christ. But if we watch the Scriptures... We find out that there's something God specifically has for us, and every one of us has a full-time responsibility in the mission. We have a mission that Jesus has given us as his church, and you read about that in the Great Commission passages, but it's all through, all through uh, Paul, Paul's letters and John's letters. It's all through. What are you doing here? What are you doing here? You're part of this mission of making disciples. Last week, we said the mission, despite the storm. Remember the picture of the storm? And the point is that, well, there's suffering in the, the Christian life. We're under pressure. We're under duress. We suffer. We suffer for our choices. We suffer for the choices of others. We have hurt ourselves. We've hurt others. Others have hurt us. And that's life. How are you going to get away from all this suffering? You're not. You're going to suffer. So that's the storm. But that's not the mission. The storm isn't the mission. The mission is the mission. And so we say there are problems in this life and you have to tell the truth about it. It's big, but it's not what I'm here for. You don't at the end say, well, we made it through the storm. No, you went somewhere and there was a storm along the way and you dealt with it. You know, like if you read a great book on uh, how we got here in the United States with the faith that we have, um, it's called The Mayflower by Nathaniel Philbrick. It's the story of these separatists that left Scrooby, England uh, in 1620 and did the unthinkable. They set sail for Virginia and they stopped in Massachusetts. I don't know 
uh, why they did that. Oh, I do know why they did that. Um, but um, I think it might have been better to stop in Virginia. But the Lord had a plan. Stopped in Massachusetts, set up Plymouth, Plymouth Plantation. And you know, you know some of that story. Well, you know, to get here, they had to suffer <laughs> a lot uh, in the hold of that ship. You can go to the Mayflower too down the street here and see what it was like to be 100 and whatever it was, 118 people, I think, 120-something people in the hold of this little boat. You don't want to be part of that event, but you can go see the, on the Mayflower too, and, and as I like to say, uh, bang your head where the taller pilgrims would have banged their heads, you know, on, on a, a scale replica of the Mayflower. And um, boy, it would have been hard to be on that trip, but as, as hard as that would have been, wait till the storm. There was a squall that kicked up on the Atlantic as they were crossing, that uh, was so bad, it almost capsized the Mayflower. And they had to do a maneuver where they, they basically set, they, they, they strike all the sails and they turn the boat to, to, the, water, to, to, the, to the mercy of the, the wind and the waves. And they just had to ride it out. And when the Mayflower too did the same trip, they built it in England, sailed it over here in the 50s, they had the same experience. They had the same type of squall, and they knew from the, from the writings, I forget the shipmaster, uh, of, of, the, of the coming over, of the crossing, they, le- they learned, well, the way they did it before with this clunky boat is they struck the sails and they turned the boat to the wind to let it do whatever it wanted, and that's what they did. They did the same exact maneuver, and they, <laughs> they weathered the same squall, the same p- type of storm. To get th- but they weren't just in there to, to face a storm. They weren't storm chasers. They were on a mission, and we're part of it now today by God's providence. So you have problems, but that's not the mission. Tonight I want to talk about solving the problems of time. Solving the problems of time. It is the time machine of VBS. We've got the time uh, landscape behind us. And um, this is a time machine in popular culture. This is a picture of uh, something the kids like, that the kids have been liking since the early, well, mid-60s called Doctor Who. This is Doctor Who's time machine I put up there. And um, that's an open source picture that I got that I'm allowed to use. But uh, anyway, (laughs) um, it's called a TARDIS, and I forget what that stands for, but you probably know. It it means time machine. And um, Doctor Who is a science fiction character, we'll call soft science fiction, because you never really understand why anything happens. They just, they don't give you no physics, no explanations of anything connecting to reality, except that you got this alien with a time machine who looks like uh, uh, Dave Tennant and some other guys um, that are movie stars in Great Britain. Okay, so uh, British science fiction. Um, but but it, the point is, he's a time lord, and um, we're going to solve the problems of time tonight to get God's perspective on problems and mission. Both the first two things come together tonight with mission and problems as we look at time. And so I think what are we doing here is a question of time. You only have so long to be here. If I had my drawing up here, if I could draw, I would draw the timeline of your life. And I would say you were born at this point, you met Christ at this point, and then you were going to die physically at this point that God has determined and you haven't. Sometime in the future, you're going to die. And that small chunk of time from the cross until your death is what Jesus evaluates at the judgment seat of Christ. And the clock is ticking and there's not much of it. And that if you start dwelling on it, can start to feel like a problem. So I want to talk about what we do with time. I believe that it is the most valuable resource you have after your own integrity. You wouldn't sacrifice your integrity to get more time, right? You wouldn't sell your friends out and let them be tortured to death so that you could have more time. You would jump on that grenade or whatever. You would sacrifice yourself and your time for your integrity. For, uh, and I, that's, that's, 
That's integrity. Now, but let's put that aside and say after that, well, time is the most valuable thing we have that God's given us. And we don't know how much he's given us, but it's the most valuable thing because it's how you measure life. Life is measured in time. And, and tonight, by the, by the way, spoiler alert, clock watching to get over the job, to get past the job, just how much longer till my shift is over, that's going to be really uh, something you're not going to want to do after thinking this through with me about the value of time. So the question is, if life is measured with time, then what are we doing with our time? I'm looking at um, most of you are involved in vacation Bible school this week. I know what you're doing with your time this week. Look what you did tonight with your time. This was rest time. This is recovery time. You came to fellowship together. Look what you've done with the time that you have. There's a lot of competing, there, excuse me, there are a lot of competing alternatives for your time on a Wednesday night. Lots of things you could do with your time. But you've chosen to focus on the things of God tonight, to think about what you're doing with your life, and seek the change that the Holy Spirit would bring through His Word. So uh, let's get to that. I think time is your enemy in at least two ways. You ready? There may be other ways, but these are the two ways I have thought of, and I have biblical answers to both of these problems of time. Time will be your enemy in two ways. First of all, if you're like me, you're going to say you don't have enough of it. I don't have enough time. Busy people with ambition know what it's like to not, not to have enough time. They know what it's like because I just didn't get it done. I just, I need some more time. I was going to sleep, but instead I'm going to finish. You know, that kind of thing. You get on a sprint on, on something you're doing. So uh, you got to have the crops in before the frost, you know, right? Even in New England. And the old saying, the ox is in the ditch. What does that mean? That means I can't really do anything else right now because my tractor is, bro- is broken and I have to fix that or I can't plow. So we, we, we stop everything. I mean, even on Sunday, if the ox is in the ditch, well, it's understandable if you didn't come to meeting. That idea, you know, that the ox was in the ditch, we had to. This is something like uh, from the Mosaic Law where uh, do you work on the Sabbath? Well, is the ox in the ditch? the ox is in the ditch, then you work hard to get it out. In other words, it's going to die if you don't save it. Well, we'll wait till, uh, till nightfall on Saturday till we can get the ox out. No, you get the ox out now. And Jesus sort of taught that, did teach that in his ministry. Now, we have that problem of time. The other problem is that we have too much time. And this is the problem young people have more than older people. Young people face this, but I think everybody at times faces this problem. I'm so bored. We are going to look at the national pastime. I like baseball, but it's the national pastime. I hate that word pastime. It means that uh, I had extra time on hand and I just uh, was going to throw it away on watching guys play baseball. Okay, when is my next diversion coming? When is the next thing that can help me not deal with the passing of moments in my life? Because one of my greatest fears in life, maybe one of yours, is boredom. I am deathly afraid of boredom i learned as a child to be afraid of boredom another thing i learned as a child about boredom is its arrogance boredom is arrogance because god has given me a resource but i'm poaching from what i'm going to say in a moment now i think we've covered pretty much stop making noise with that i think we've pretty much covered the issue of the problems of time there are probably more of those there's a related problem to boredom There's a related problem to boredom, and it is this. 
It is this problem, that I don't want to do the things I need to do to get the things I want to have. I focus on the things I want, like money or dessert. And I don't do the things I need to do to get to those things. I just want those things, and I focus on the results, the desirable results, instead of the way that you legitimately get there. So I look for the effects instead of going to the cause. And if I do that with, like, for example, work and play, if I go for play, 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 I have a whole generation of adult players that are just playing. And they're working, but they're really just trying to play. When, when, you, when you don't embrace as a first order thing, the work, you miss the blessing that makes playing enjoyable. You miss the joy of work. And as I like to say, as, my, as we like to say, Samuel could tell you, as we like to say in our family, work is fun. And life is work. So life is fun. And that's your only real hope for enjoying life. That Young people, that's a really helpful insight. If you find work that you are made for, you will find that work is more fun than the fun you would have with the money you made at work to go have fun with. What I'm doing now is more enjoyable to me. What I did to prepare for now, all the many years that it took me to prepare for right now, has been more enjoyable to me in an aggregate way than anything I could do in celebration of completion of this phase of work. And we have our little celebrations, don't we? Vacation Bible School is a great celebration of a year. I mean, it's the summer, it's summer break. We work hard at it, but it's so wonderful to just spend time together and, and work together and pray with these kids and tell them about the Lord Jesus Christ. Anyway, the two big problems with time, as we're going to focus on tonight, are not having enough time and having too much time. And my challenge to you is, if you'll be on mission, you'll solve both of those problems. Young people that are worried about boredom, you'll solve the problem of too much time. People that have a little bit more perspective and are afraid more as the days go on of how fast time is going will be set at ease by the mission because the truth is you have just as much time as you need. And I need to tell myself that every day. We have just as much time for what God wants us to accomplish as we need. So let's solve the problems of time. This is, this is kind of like my outline slide, and we'll keep coming back to it, and I have a couple things I want to say with you about it. So if you have not enough time, it is basically a worry about failure. I didn't get the crops in, so we didn't feed the family, or we didn't get to market, and we didn't feed the family with the money that we got at market. So that's, that's, a, that's a worry factor. If you don't have enough time, usually it's because you're worried. There's a deadline. There's a, there's a bad thing that happens if I don't meet the deadline, and so I'm worried about it. And that's timelines are helpful like a deadline is a helpful thing to to focus our energies and efforts and uh, so we worry about failure when there's not enough time and my question that I have to ask myself I challenge you to ask yourself is who says there's a failure who says that we're going to fail if x doesn't happen this is a problem perspective who is the judge of success or failure you know when time's up when Jesus calls you home and when you stand before him at the judgment seat of Christ we'll find out about success and failure right? That, it's, a, it's a perspective thing. I'm focused on the job that I'm doing, and I've got this project at work, or, or whatever it is. Well, maybe the Lord Jesus, in his providence for your life, you're not going to succeed in the mission that you're attempting to do at work. Maybe you have to learn to fail at this. I did my best, and it wasn't good enough. We didn't get there. I didn't get the thing done. They're not happy with me. 
Maybe that's a trial that God is going to let you grow through where you recognize his sufficiency. Have you had to face that test? I have. I've had some intense and interesting prayer times with God in my life over not being able to complete what I had set out to complete and facing the, the wrath of man. And it's not a, it, not a, it's not a, a, a cop-out. Well, I guess I just didn't have time. You go there and say, I failed. I let you down. I said I would do X and I didn't. And you trust in God and you find out that it's really an issue of perspective. Who am I really working for? Who is the audience that I'm trying to please? Whose pleasure matters to me? Mine? Probably more than it should. My wife's? Paul says, hey, be careful about marriage where you're trying to please your spouse instead of pleasing the Lord. Right? Right? Who are we trying to please? Well, we better please God. And so this is going to change our perspective. That just said, I'm I'm doing audio and video. So for those who can't see the slide, I've got a picture of Doctor Who's time machine. Doctor Who is an alien whose species is called a time lord. And I'm saying, based on the fun science fiction illustration, that Jesus Christ, God, is the only real time lord. And I want to say something about fiction just for a moment, because um, if you don't like it, I understand. You're you're too busy for all that. My dad, I would try to talk to him about science fiction or fantasy when I was a kid and into that stuff. He'd always be like, I just can't go for all that make-believe. Let's go throw the baseball, which was great advice, and I really appreciated it. And I also liked science fiction and fantasy as a kid, but uh, he couldn't get into it. And uh, I remember he took me to see The Return of the Jedi when it was in the theater, and I remember seeing him sleep through that, and... um, uh, I didn't. Uh, by the way, spoiler alert, Yoda dies in that one. So anyway, um, the Time Lord is an interesting concept because he's powerful and he solves problems. The Doctor Who story is about this guy who goes around in time and space solving problems and managing things and fighting wars. He has a, a, a super race of, uh, of robot monsters he has to fight that are basically a trash can with a plunger sticking out of it called Daleks. And they say things like, exterminate, exterminate. And um, it's a silly and fun thing. That's, it, it really, it's funny how little tech, how little uh, um, uh, you know, science, uh, special effects they use in the old stuff. It really is a trash can with a plunger sticking out. And it's, it's the most dangerous species in the universe. Anyway. So Doctor Who fights these, these Daleks, and, he, and I just have to say that if you compare any epic story with any epic hero who has to fight an epic villain to what the Bible says about the real hero who sacrificed himself to save the people in distress and defeat the enemy that's trying to oppress and destroy those said people, you will, you will always be dazzled that there's only really one story. There's only one, really one hero. There's only one celebrity. It's, but the difference is, this is make-believe. This is fun, campy, make-believe. Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior. He is the hero. And it's not made up. And you can't, you can't really tell a compelling story without stealing from the story. It's amazing how that works. Every great, by the way, next time you go for a great, great show, whatever it is, Look out for the hero to sacrifice himself to save the others. That's called a Christ figure in literature, and there's a reason why. Um, I learned this in high school um, 
I think I learned this in high school in literature. We're learning how literature works. And um, I've always been captivated by the idea of the great literature. Now, I'm going to prove to you that God is the time Lord, that He's in charge of our days and our minutes and our hours by going to Scripture. In Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 1, there is an appointed time. That word is a fairly, is a rare word, only two or three times in the Old Testament, the word for time in Ecclesiastes 3.1. And it means, in the other examples, that there is a set, determined time, meaning God is the one making the determination. There's an appointed time for everything. There's a time for every event under heaven. And you know what Ecclesiastes 3, 2 through 8 say, right? A time to be born, a time to die, a time to war, a time, to, a time for peace, time to gather stones, time to cast away stones, gather stones to stone someone, time to cast away stones to forgive them and not stone them is what that means. Ever wonder about the stones? It's about capital punishment, I think. A time for, uh, for, for planting, a time for harvest, all these things, sowing and reaping, there's, a, there's an appointed time for them, and the point of Ecclesiastes as a book is that time is short. That's the whole point. He says everything's meaningless. He means everything is passing quickly. Everything's a vapor, and uh, life needs something more significant to give it, it needs something more, more substantial to give it its significance, and that's why beyond the sun, you go to the Creator. Okay, now life matters because an eternal one who is concerned about me, is interested. Now my life has significance. That's the point of Ecclesiastes. In Psalm 31, 15, my times are in your hand. My days, literally, yom, my days are in your hand. Deliver me from the hand of my enemies and from those who persecute me. Is a, is a prayer of, of deliverance. In Psalm 31, 15, I'm not going to turn to Psalm 31. Uh, there are some that I will in a moment, but, um, but look at that. It's, it's, you've got it. It's your, your, you've got the time. It's God's the time, Lord. Psalm 90, Psalm of Moses. So teach us to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. That's one to memorize. Teach us to number our days so that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. Where's Psalms? It's the same place in this Bible as in the other Bibles. Okay. Psalm 90 is a very intriguing, intriguing thing to read through. It's very brief. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Now, this is Moses apparently talking to the Lord through the wilderness wanderings, 40 years of death in the wilderness. Before the mountains were born, you or, or you gave birth to the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. So Moses, who's going the long walk, they used to say somebody's as slow as Moses. He's in the long circle of death in the desert because Israel disobeyed God, and they disobeyed God because they didn't trust him, right? So that's what's going on in Psalm 90, and he's comparing how quickly they're dying in their 40-year sojourn in the wilderness to how long God's existence is. And that's the contrast between man and God in terms of how long we last. You turn man back into dust and say, return, O children of men, for a thousand years in your sight are like, the, like yesterday when it passes by or as a watch in the night. You have swept them away like a flood. They fall asleep in the morning. They're, they're like grass which sprouts anew. So he's watching the children of Israel die that that exodus generation die in the wilderness and it's it just seems so very transitory another several thousand died today would be the report how many babies were born so many thousand were born in this uh two million person population that left um that left the land or left land of egypt now 
In the morning, it flourishes and sprouts anew. Toward evening, it fades and withers away. So he's describing like one day of God's existence is our entire lifespan. It's a metaphor. Don't, don't think that that puts God in some sort of alternative time scale. That's not the point where we could mathematically do it. You're just supposed to see, wow, you know, for, ever see one of those, those um, uh, time-lapse photography where they show you fast, they, they show go fast, where you see like a plant sprout or something? And it, you would never have been able to watch that. But you can see it in time-lapse photography because they speed it up. That's how our life is to God. It's just like over like that. We have been consumed by your anger, and by your wrath we've been dismayed. See, this is, this is the discipline of God for the children of Israel for the rebellion um, at, um, at um, the Kadesh, Barnea, sorry. You've placed your, our iniquities before you, so you're looking at our sins, our secret sins in the light of your presence. So we can't even hide from you with our, with our sins and our wickedness. For all our days are declined in your fury. You've finished our years like a sigh. As for the days of our life, they contain 70 years, or if stre- due to strength, 80 years, yet their pride is but labor and sorrow. The, the pride of our days is labor and hardship. For soon it's gone and we fly away. Who understands the power of your anger and your fury according to the fear that is due you? So, so he, he's just doing this contrast of a suffering life and, and these people under discipline from God in comparison to God and his eternal bliss and uh, no end or beginning to his existence. And so then, because you're different from us, you're the creator and we're the creature, here's our request. So teach us to number our days that we may present to you a heart of skill or chokhmah, wisdom. Teach us to number our days so that we can live this life before you wisely. Do return, O Lord, how long will it be? And be sorry for your servants. This is, we've failed and we know your wrath will turn. We're praying for it to turn because this is hurting. Oh, satisfy us in the morning with your loving kindness that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. Make us glad according to the days you've afflicted us and the years we've, we've seen evil. Let your work appear to your servants and your majesty to your children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and confirm us for the work of our hands. Yes, confirm the work of our hands. So Moses is asking for God to redeem them from the discipline that they're under, I believe, in that psalm. But in there, you've got this, teach us to number our days so that we can present to you a heart of wisdom. See, I want my days to count as you count them, using count in two ways there. I want my days to to matter as you give me days so that you're pleased as I present myself to you. That's the way of wisdom. All right. Psalm 91.16, a messianic psalm quoted by Satan toward Jesus correctly, if he did jump off the temple, the angels would bear him up so they wouldn't break his, his legs or his feet. But in Psalm 91.16, it concludes, With a long life, I will satisfy him and let him see my salvation. With a long life. The reason I bring this up is because God is in charge of the length. And I believe that the messianic interpretation of Psalm 91 is an eternal life. Because Jesus Christ, I mean, all the evangelicals know he lived 33 years in his earthly sojourn. I believe it was probably closer. This is not heresy. It's just math. Probably closer to 37. He was born in 4 BC, 5, 4 BC. He died 33 AD, 37 years, 37, 38. But the point is, um, that's not a long life, but the one who trusts in God will have a long life. So how is that possible? Eternal life. That's the answer. That's the answer. It's not about 
uh, how long can I extend my physical decay? <laughs> it's how, I want to live without physical decay. You will. That's coming. It's called life. Eternal life. Right? And that, this is, I believe this is a prophecy of resurrection. Psalm 91.16. Acts 1.7, the Lord Jesus, the time Lord, said to them, It is not for you to know times or epics which the Father has fixed by his own authority. God the Father gets to decide what the times and seasons are, and he's really running history, so don't worry about it. My Father is the time Lord. All right. In Ephesians 5, let's go to the New Testament. Therefore, be careful. This is one of the most important summaries of your Christian walk. Be careful how you walk, not as unwise or unskilled men, but as wise or skilled men. How? By making the most of your time, for the days are evil. How are the days evil? They're short and they're full of rejection of God. The days are evil. There's not many of them. They go quickly and you're surrounded by distractions from your Christian life. Every wind that blows of doctrine that tosses you here and there in context. But don't be fooled by deception. Walk in the light and be careful how you walk, making the most of your time for the days are evil. So don't therefore be foolish, but rather commanded. Understand what the will of the Lord is. That's what this series on mission is about. It's about us understanding what the will of the Lord is. When, I, when he says this, I do not believe that you're supposed to figure out what God's specific center of the will of God is. I don't think that's how it works. In fact, that common evangelical phrase does not exist in the Bible. Well, I just don't know if I'm in the center of God's will. Well, get in the center of his word and then start making decisions to worship him based on what he's told you. Pray consistently, unceasingly, says, uh, says 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Consistently talk to him. Pray in accordance with what he's revealed in the Bible. Get on mission. You'll be in God's will because that's what he told you he wants. He's, he hasn't organized your life into this mystery of stumbling around trying various options to see which one is the good choice. Do I go with, a, with Mopar or do I choose Ford products? God probably has would not send you down the Mopar route. I want to assume, but anyway. <laughs> That's Dodge uh, Chrysler stuff. That's a silly joke. I'm just saying, is it Crest or Aquafresh? I just don't know. Pretty sure he wants you to brush your teeth. That's good stewardship of the resource he gave you. But the, the, the point is that we get wrapped around the axle about things the Bible doesn't talk about, and we don't know what the Bible does talk about. And then when you have Christians get together and talk about God's plan and God's will, there's not a lot of Bible in the discussion, right? And so let's adjust that. Let's, let's make it about God's revealed will and make sure we're walking according to his will. I think he means get in the word. What is Ephesians, Ephesians 5.17? To know the will of God. And then he says something in 5.18. Do not be drunk with wine for that's a waste in context you're really not in god's will you don't know god's will you're not thinking god's thoughts if you're intoxicated you're wasting dissipating you're wasting your life but rather be filled by the spirit and again that doesn't mean that he tells you turn left turn right i just have a a burning feeling it must be the holy spirit that i'm supposed to go so and so probably not you're not well i feel like i'm disobeying god if i don't go with my liver quiver 
I just didn't go with my liver quiver, and so I must be disobeying God. And that's what we're talking about. It's not what you're talking about here. The filling of the Spirit is let the Word of Christ richly, richly dwell within you. It's the Word of God. And the best I can say about mysticism, about this soft mysticism, I'm, I'm just trying to feel my way to what the right thing is. And now I'm not saying God doesn't work in your life through circumstances. He's constantly serving you up circumstances to see will you trust me and worship me in the circumstance. But here's what I want to say. The folks that want to say, no, God does reveal special revelation to me and it's not the Bible. The, the Bible's different and I, I just get these little special messages, little inner, inner text message from Jesus or whatever. The best thing you can say about that is that uh, the person would walk parallel with the Bible in this liver quiver thing and this mysticism. But what I often find on TV or wherever else is that there's an intersection. The Bible says this, but we feel this. And so what do we go with? Do I disobey the Holy Spirit who's making me feel? Well, it's really just your feelings. Or do I obey the Holy Spirit who said it in the word? That, that brother that I spoke to one time is divorcing his wife and he told me, oh, no, no, Dave, it's going to be okay. I've prayed about it and God gave me peace. How do you argue with that? Well, you, you say, well, um, the God of the scriptures says that uh, you're supposed to make peace here. Be a man, be a husband. Sacrifice yourself and your own cons- uh, comforts for your wife's best and love her as a Christian toward your wife. Let's, let's inject some real romance into this and stop thinking about yourself and love her with abandon. That's what, the, that's what Jesus says. I don't know who, who God is that gave you peace about directly disobeying him, but um, not the God of the scriptures, the God of the stomach. Remember Christian idolatry. I feel like getting a divorce. It'd be so much easier. Probably would. I could play video games. I could eat TV dinners. Nobody would gripe at me about, eating, about doing whatever I want to do. It would be so much better to just get out of the, you know, whatever the uncomfortable situation is. So I just, just disobeyed Jesus a little bit, but he says, they're there in my mystical prayer life. He makes me feel better about it. And then the Bible basically has no relevance to me at all. Does it sound like I'm a little bit broken about this situation? I kind of am. It's, it's, it's hard to see people waste their lives. And, it's, and, and uh, but God is, God is good and he can, he can make even such a rebellion against him. He can turn it back. He can, he can. He can turn it back, and that can be redeemed. But I can't redeem it. Only the Lord Jesus can. Colossians 4. Conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. Same type of thing as Ephesians 5. Making the most of the opportunity. Guess what the word in Greek is for opportunity? Kairos, time. The most of the event, capsulated in time, where you are dealing with outsiders. How do you deal with outsiders? How are we supposed to deal with outsiders on mission? Those people need Christ and they need to serve him and they need to obey him. And so that's the idea. Matthew 6, 34, do not worry about tomorrow for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Jesus Christ telling you, you don't have to worry about time. I've got it. I've got it. So when we say there's not enough time, we forget that God is the real time Lord and we're not. We need to rest in him. And so... The rationale of sufficient resources will now be valuable. If I was writing something down that you would get here and not get somewhere else, this is the way I summarize what God promised to do. It's my rationale for sufficient resources. Sufficient resources. I like to name things what they are. 
so that you can open, you can see it's a clear box. This is rationale of sufficient resources. We're going to look in there. We're going to find out a way to think through the fact that God has given us sufficient resources. So here's the thought. This is a very simple knockdown discussion. In 2 Peter 1.3, seeing that his divine power has granted us everything pertaining to life and godliness, meaning everything we need for life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. That is a statement of overwhelming sufficiency. God has given you everything you need for life and godliness. Well, what else is there? Life and good worship to God in your life. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. See what I'm, where I'm going? He's, he's the one that has taken on himself to provide for my needs. He's the shepherd, I'm the sheep. Shepherd feeds the sheep. Shepherd protects the sheep. So I, I, that's, it's, his, it's his job to feed me. Let him do his job. Trust him. 2 Corinthians 9. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing. See, they're joining Paul in the gospel ministry. So you're going to sow seed. He's going to resupply your seed and increase your harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in everything for all liberality, which through us is proclaiming thanksgiving to God. Now, context, the Corinthians are supplying the needs financially of the oppressed believers in Jerusalem. Paul's taking up a collection to help with that relief effort. And this is the way we think about giving. You're giving God's resources that he's given you with an expectation of him backfilling you so you can keep giving. It's the idea, all Christian giving, all through the scripture, is the presentation that you and I are a conduit, not a reservoir. And if you turn off the faucet of the conduit that's putting it out, the reservoir fills up and there's no throughput. Don't expect more backfill. But God asks you to challenge him. Open the conduit to bless And watch him backfill you because you're about his business. You're on mission. See, we're doing what God has for us to do. And that's the way to think about giving. That's the way to think about support. Well, if I give this sacrificially, then, you know, I won't have. Trust in God as you you consider supporting his mission, however you do it. Trust him. Trust him. He actually does show up. Matthew 14, 13 through 21. Last time we did the... The storm where Peter and Jesus walked on water. Well, Jesus, then Peter, and then Peter sank, and Jesus, without having anything to stand on but water, helped Peter up, which is really neat physics. Well, before that, we said, there's the feeding of the 5,000. Now, what's the point of that story? You, Jesus says, give them something to eat. Jesus tells these under-shepherds to feed the sheep physical food. It's one of the, one of the most exciting object lessons ever. And what, is ha- what happens? Jesus, as we've said, doesn't miracle everyone of a dish. He could have. Everybody doesn't, like, like the genie in the Aladdin story, he doesn't blink and all of a sudden there's a banquet in front of everyone. He says, what do you have? They say, not much. And Andrew says, this kid, <laughs> this, this young man has brought us his two fish and five loaves. And so, and that's Andrew, and it gets the meal. And then Jesus takes what they have and he makes it what? Sufficient. He takes what meager thing they have that could never do the job, and he makes it sufficient. He blows it up. He, he explodes it where it is sufficient for the impossible task. He told them to do something they absolutely could not do on their own. He said, put it in my hands, what you have, and see what you can do. Now, let me prove it to you that that's what's going on in the story. That's for your reading later. 
But what, what happens in the story is that Jesus multiplies the food that they brought to him and then he assigns to them to deliver it to the people. So not only does he tell them impossibility, you feed them, but then he takes what they have, makes it possible through his miracle, and then they feed them. He tells them to do something, he makes it possible for them to do it, and then they do it. This is, this is the principle, the rationale of sufficient resources. If God has something for you to do, the way he said it, if God has something for you to do, he'll provide for you to do it. I just can't X. Well, that's a violation of the rationale of sufficient resources because if he wants you to love that person, you can. I just can't love that person. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. You know the deal. Some other promises, that, this is that verse, Philippians 4, 11 13. Paul talking about uh, his encouragement that they have pr- provided for him in the mission. So he, they, he was, he was uh, without support and he was working and then a, a big gift came that supported him to actually he could feed himself from the, from the gift the Philippians sent, which meant he could go full-time into ministry as you guys brought me up to do here. Now, I don't speak, not that I'm speaking from want when I thank you for the, for the renewal of your, of your interest in me and your support. For I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances. I am not dependent on your gift for my contentment. Very important to get this because Paul is now blessing them more than they could ever have expected and on the occasion of their gift. They, he's giving them much more than they gave him, in other words, by saying it's not about the circumstances. It's not about the circumstances. I know how to get along with humble means. I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. If I'm hungry for God's sake, I can be filled with joy that I'm suffering for his sake. Because what? I can do all things through Jesus Christ, through him who strengthens me. That's the secret. He tells you the secret. He doesn't hold on to the secret. I have the secret. I won't tell you what it is. Let your pastor into it. He tells you the secret right there. We really don't have to be very creative with the Bible. In fact, let's let God be creative. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. The secret is hunger in Christ. The secret is be filled in Christ. And whatever your circumstances for me to live is Christ. That's the secret. Let's go through the rationale. Number one, God is good. He's righteous, just, loving, and he is fair. He's righteous, just, loving, and fair. In fact, he's more than fair. Nobody goes to the lake of fire. Uh, who has Christ. And everybody who has Christ deserves to go to the lake of fire. He's more than fair. God is good, righteous, just, loving, and fair. Second, God has commanded us to be on mission. He gave us his commands. The commands of scripture focus on making disciples with the right attitude despite our circumstances. And third, God has taken our provision, our needs as his responsibility. Am I painting a picture for you? There's no other way to think biblically about your needs than this, th- than this thought. And this is the rationale of what? Sufficient resources. Sufficient means enough. I've got enough. Fourth, God fulfills his responsibilities. He took it on himself to provide for you. So he fulfills his responsibilities. Therefore, he will provide whatever we need to accomplish his mission. When the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor... The Bataan Death March was a certainty. Does that, do you know your history and your geography? When we lost our Pacific fleet, we lost the ability to resupply and feed the men in the Philippines. 
And we had a large military army presence in the Philippines. When we lost the fleet, which is your resupply, we lost the ability to feed those men. And thousands died horribly as a consequence of the destruction of our fleet in Hawaii. Whatever MacArthur said about dying place, whatever happened with all the, the story of the battle of the Philippines where the J- Japanese finally took it, uh, there's a great book about this called The Ghost Soldiers. It's about the raid by the r- rangers that were, um, were trained for the specific mission of liberating Cabanatuan uh, prison camp in the Philippines. They sent, they sent rangers in and, um, and they raided the camp and saved what was left of the men who had survived the Bataan Death March. And so it goes in, that story goes, as the Hampton Sides, I believe, wrote it. It goes into all the, the history of the, 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 the final surrender of the American forces, the American and Filipino forces, um, to the Japanese. And you know what? They ran out of food. They didn't run out of bullets. They had, before they went and surrendered, they had to blow up ammunition for, I believe, three straight days. You know how much ammunition it is to have to work for three days to blow it up? I mean, that... They, they weren't out of bullets. They had eaten all the monkeys on the island. There was no food. They were starving. They were dying of beriberi, which is a condition you get for, lack, for malnourishment in the tropics. It's, it, they were tortured before they surrendered, tortured by, by starvation. And then they had to march thousand miles, well, however many, hundreds of miles with Japanese bayonets in their sides in the Bataan Death March. It's, it's awful what happened to those forces, but it only happened because of Pearl Harbor. I mean, we couldn't resupply them, so they couldn't fight. And so they had to surrender, and, and most of them died. Either from the, the, from, from the, before the surrender, or in the death march, or in the camp. And it was a, real, a literally skeleton crew when we got our raid together and went and liberated what was left. But God, he, he's much better at logistics than we are. He doesn't have it dependent on a fleet that can be defeated by the enemy. You can't defeat God's resupply which is the most important part of any military strategy and truly tactics. Romans 8.32, whenever you're wondering, this is your memory verse, whenever you're wondering if God really has anything good for you, we do, we get into that mindset. We believe the lie that God isn't good. He's not taking care of me. He, God, the Father, who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, if that's true, how then will he not freely give us with him all things? How will he not with him freely give us all things? You know the big Latin word is a fortiori. It means for a stronger reason. It's a, it's a Latin um, logic word. If he gave us the most, then he'll give us less than the most. If he gave us the highest and best, then why are we worried about beans and bullets? Provision for the fight. But I, I, I am not excited about the prospects of beans and bullets if you're not going to be in the fight. <laughs> That's a waste of resources. So we've got the rationale of sufficient resources. Here's my principle on solving your problem about uh, not enough time. If I'm on mission, I have enough time because he's going to give me the resource of time that I need to do the mission. If I'm not on mission and I've got other missions that I've given myself, you probably don't have enough time for that because that's not why you have time in the first place. You're misappropriating resources. You're playing Washington, D.C., and you're shuffling stuff around for purposes it wasn't designed for. If you've got too much time, your boredom, and that goes to depression, right? I'm not talking about clinical depression because I'm not clinical, but 
It probably is what people call clinical depression. There probably is a connection between the malaise of, of a lack of fulfillment in life, and, and I just can't wait for the day to be over and when's the next fun thing, to uh, a brokenness in your brain. I suspect there's a real connection there. What is my time for in the first place? See, the problem was perspective. You're bored. What do you mean you're bored? You don't have work to do? Well, I don't want to do that. <laughs> don't you have a mission to accomplish? I'm, I'm squandering the mission. I don't want to be on the mission. I want to play. Well, I expect you to be bored and to miss the whole joy and the real fun of this life because, as we said, life is work and work is fun, so life is fun. You with me? Life is work and work is fun, so life is fun. The rationale of sufficient resources applies to the problem of boredom. This is, the illustration here is not the resupply of our troops in the Philippines. The issue here is the, the, the um, resources that we feed through, uh, through the UN or NATO or whoever when we, when we go provide food for the starving people of the warlord countries and the food rots on the docks because they can't get to it because of the because of the monsters that are preventing the poor people from having food. Their, their own people, starving their people. Number six, provision of resources indicates a responsibility to manage them properly. Major principle summary of all scripture. When God gives you something, he wants you to use it his way. That's proper management of resources. This is proper management we call stewardship. Stewardship doesn't mean the preacher gives a message on giving once a year. That's not stewardship. Stewardship means I've been given something that someone else wants, wants something done with it, and then I am a steward, a caretaker of the thing he's given me. It's God's house. I am the one stewarding the resource. It's God's time. It's God's kids. Whatever I have that is mine, I need to recognize I am God's. So it's all delegated responsibility, and I better be accountable to the one who gave it to me for how I do it. And so this is stewardship, proper management of resources. You see where I'm going with this on time? I've got too much time on my hands. Wait a second. That's food rotting on the docks, not, not, not helping people. Not helping people it's designed for. Number eight, we have, we have what we need to be on mission. You don't have too much time. You don't have a focus on mission. You don't have too much time. You're not, there's no call for boredom here. You ought to be so busy that there's no time for boredom. You're looking at, at the clock. The first time you look at it is it's past, it's past knocking off time because uh, you need to steward the resource of rest and your body and sleep and, and, and recover so you can do it again. See, this is, this is the cure for boredom is we've got a mission. There will be a quiz on the way home. Number nine. Here's your example. God gave you the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, to live in your heart given as a pledge or as, a, um, as an earnest in Ephesians 1.14 and elsewhere, the earnest of the Spirit, down payment, initial capitalization with an expectation of future rewards and blessings. God is the one working in us both to will and work for His pleasure. God is the one working in us both to want and to do what pleases Him. God is the one working in us both to will and to do what pleases Him, to be on mission to be about his business, to be focused on his tasks, specific tasks he set for us as a group to do. So the bored Christian who's not on mission is like, well, what am I going to do with my time? What a tragedy. What a travesty. What a waste of resources. The food is rotting on the docks. 
in the town where the people are starving and they need it. It's a waste of resources. So that's the problem of too much time, boredom. If I'm bored, I'm not on mission. If I'm on mission, I have enough time. If I'm bored, I'm not on mission. And so we've just solved the biggest problems in life, the greatest fears, not enough time, too much time. If you're on mission, you're trusting in God and he's gonna give you exactly what you need. Well, Lord, if you just give me one more day. No, that's not what I wanted. I didn't want you to do it for one more day. I wanted you to do what you did with what you had with what I gave you. So really what had to change is that I'm not running the show. He gets to run the show. He tells me how it's time and what he wants me to accomplish. Summary. We got there. We got to the summary. Don't look at the clock. That's the whole point of the talk. <laughs> That's the whole point of the tick talk. All right. Time is a blessing. It's a stewardship from God. He wants us to use it for his purposes. Right? Time is a blessing. It's a stewardship from God. So he thinks, he has an idea about what you do with your time. When we think we have too much time, we're not about his business. We need to repent. That's change our minds and get back on mission. That's when we think we have too much time. Oh, how long, much longer is this going to take? Hey, get back on mission. This is what he has for you. There's something he wants you to do in this. Trust him and be about his business. Don't be that. Don't be that employee who constantly has to be goaded back to get into the tracks of performance so that you get what... We want to promote you. We want to see you do better. We want to see you grow and thrive, but you just won't do your job. So we can't and eventually get fired. Go to the next place, down a rung. They try you. They're like, oh, you're not going to perform, are you? Eh, get fired, down a rung. And eventually you're holding the sign out by Target. We'll work for food. And there's a lot of people that have seen that you won't. <laughs> in your past who will drive right past you all right get back on mission when you're bored that's a confess your sins of squandering god's resources asking him to strengthen you for the mission at hand and to see it how can i perform in your mission we all can do this we all need to do this when we think that we don't have enough time i'm i don't have enough time we are not trusting god that he's provided sufficient resources to accomplish his purposes we're not trusting god and so we need to repent by trusting him. The problem there is a lack of faith that he's given me what I need. And we need to remember that this life is about his mission in the first place. Now, I suspect that this makes a lot of sense to you right now if you're still tracking me. And this group is the tracking group. Welcome to Advanced Christian Karate. Uh, you're the trackers. Now, you're going to want these notes. <laughs> Because when something hits you that gives you either one of the time problems that you're just, you just can't believe you have to go through something and it's boring to you, or, or um, you're under a deadline and you just can't, you can't, I can't, I can't. It's going to be hard uh, unless you quickly switch the perspective to saying God's in charge. He's the time Lord. It's his resource. I had the privilege of learning failure. And I remember just real quick that the first time I had to face that I couldn't do what I had set out to do was at college. Was in college. The first time that ever happened to me. Now I picked my battles too. I mean, I wasn't going to be a, a starting receiver in, in football. Didn't play football <laughs> after eighth grade because I wasn't good at it, and I wasn't going to be good till I was uh, out, of, out of high school because I wasn't going to fill out. So um, you know, I just I picked my battles. But I remember I picked a battle that I wanted to win in college and learned that there was something I couldn't accomplish. And I had to turn in work that I knew was going to fail. 
And it blew me away. Some of you are like, really? The first time in college? <laughs> yeah, because I'd never had to face that limitation before where I couldn't accomplish something that I'd try to do. I wanted it. The program would not compile. And it was a piece of, gra- of, of garbage. <laughs> it really was a piece of junk code. And I really haven't written much code since. <laughs> I, I could, but I, I'm not really interested in it. Point is, when you come to that failure, I remember very vividly having some Christian thoughts with God about this. God, it's your deal. Oh yeah, it's your thing. And I was able to turn the paper in that I knew was going to fail and have to redo it and, and they were going to work with me. And they did and it still was garbage. I learned a lot. Main thing I learned was I'm not in charge of this success and failure business. It's, his, it's, it's God's. And that's the orientation that will enable you to work hard and not really fr- stress about what you consider to be success or failure. It's a rationale, the sufficient resources that's going to keep coming back in our thinking again and again, and we need to have it because the Lord indeed is my shepherd. The first thing you learn as a Christian that God has you, it gets, it gets tested all the time, and it will. Heavenly Father, we love you and thank you that you have us in your hand, that we have all the time we need to accomplish all that you want us to accomplish. And yet sometimes we squander that time. We get bored of the mission. We don't want to be about your business. We want, to, we want to play. We want to go after the effects of hard work instead of the work itself. Help us repent when we need to. Help us uh, not waste our time or your time that you've given us. Help us enjoy this life of toil in the power of your son through your spirit so that you're pleased with us. Help us to relate to time properly as your resource. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.